This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly exploring today's biggest cultural issues, all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Pastor Rob Pacienza. And before I introduce our guest for today's episode, I want to announce that we are launching a new podcast. It's called City of God Families. This is going to be a very, very short podcast, maybe around five minutes each time. And it's designed for both parents and children. Uh, The nuclear family is the foundation to a free and flourishing society. This is God's design from the very beginning in the garden before there was the state and before there was even the church, uh, there was the family. And the family's role is to disciple and to shepherd their children, uh, to talk about the big things of life, uh, to talk about the things that our children are hearing uh, on the news, uh, watching on social media, uh, watching on YouTube maybe, and maybe hearing even in their classrooms. And we want to create spaces and mediums where parents and children can come together Uh, to talk about these issues, but to talk about it through the lens of God's infallible word. So be on the lookout for City of God families. Uh, We are excited about this new initiative and want to do everything possible to help resource and inform and equip our families and our parents uh, to be able to engage about the big issues of life uh, for the sake of the next generation. Well, today uh, we have a very special guest on the City of God, and that is Hillary Morgan Ferrer. She is the founder of Mama Bear Apologetics. She is an author, a podcaster, a speaker, and she has become a good friend of our ministry. Uh, we were privileged to be able to sit down with her in studio because she was in Fort Lauderdale at the Institute for Faith and Culture, uh, teaching our parents what it means to raise children in a post-Christian society. Uh, So I had the opportunity to sit down with her very briefly and explore some of the big issues of life and in our culture, uh, particularly what does it mean uh, to raise our children in the midst of secularism, uh, in the midst of Marxist ideology, um, and how to raise them up to be defenders of the faith. Uh, We see the statistics of the amount of children raised in the church that are walking away from the faith every single year, and Hillary Morgan Ferrer is helping to lead the charge in helping to reverse that curve and to reverse that growing statistic. Instead of children leaving the faith, we want to raise them up inside the church and in particularly in our homes to be champions for Jesus Christ. So without further ado, here is our interview with Hillary Morgan Ferrer. Hillary, so good to have you in studio today for the City of God podcast. Um, Some of our audience might not be familiar with Mama Bear Apologetics, so give us a little history of how that came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So Mama Bear Apologetics kind of came to me almost about 10 years ago at this point, where I was in a Bible study um, at my parents' church because they asked us to come and help. It was an apologetic study. And a woman got up and told her testimony about how her sons had been raised in a church. They did a wanted, they did youth group, they were youth group leaders. And when, and one of them even rededicated his life in college, but it wasn't until after college that he had a boss that literally said something like Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that made his worldview just crumble. And he came back to her and said, I'm not a believer anymore. Mm. 
And so she kept saying, okay, what are your questions? And so he would come and he would tell her his questions and then she would study, 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 study. And this is not, she's not normally a studier, not normally a reader. And I thought that's an instinct. What is that? I thought that's a mama bear right there who will do things that she would never do for herself that she doesn't feel like she needs. But when she sees her child having his faith kind of, you know, rocked, Mm -hmm. she will do whatever it takes. This is the grandma, you know, picking up the the car off of the child that is, uh, you know, exactly the super strength. And and so I thought that's a mama bear instinct. And so that kind of the phrase mama bear apologetics rattled around in my head for a while until I had someone also say, did you know that there's a large group of women who will not read something unless it's written by women for women? And then there's me, who's used to being the only girl in the room and not even noticing it. And I thought, oh, I, I didn't know that. And so I went straight from not only who is teaching women apologetics, but who's teaching the moms. Mm. I see moms as kind of being our ground zero. They get more questions on everything. Like you will see a child bypass dad sitting on the couch, drinking his hand, watching TV and go straight into the bathroom where mom is shaving her legs and <laughs> asked to open the pickle jar. Uh, every single question wants to go through mom. Uh, and so I said, who's getting the spiritual questions first? It's usually mom. And now dad becomes more important in the later years for questions, especially when it comes to things like economics and politics. And also dad is more important if we've seen the uh, Vern Bengston study on families and faith how a warm relationship with the father is the highest indicator of a faith that's being transmitted from generation to generation. So this doesn't say that dads aren't important, but when it comes to those spiritual questions, mom is ground zero. So that is who I felt that we needed to be pouring our resources into. Uh, And, you know, kind of um, honesty check here. I like to say this uh, usually so people understand where I'm coming from. I thought I was supposed to pass this ministry off to someone else, like God had told me so I could commission somebody else, uh, because my husband and I don't have children. Until the Lord kind of finally revealed to me, no, this this is for you. Mm. You have something that moms don't have, which is time to research. And I thought, that's true. I do have that. And so I just use whatever energy I have that would have gone into being a mom to equipping moms. And so for me, that's the kind of motherhood that the Lord has allowed me to have just with a lot of health problems that I can't have my own children. I can't raise my own children, even with adoption. And so the Lord has seen me fit to still allow that motherhood to be expressed in that way. Well, this. This is really encouraging to me because I I think you're seizing on something that really is right at the heart of our culture. And that is, you know, not to be corny, the Whitney Houston thing. I believe that children are, (laughs) we we know that that's the case, of course. And we as Christian parents want to raise Christian children. And every study, every survey shows that uh, children are walking away from the faith by the time they get to college at unprecedented levels. And uh, a lot of people don't recognize the need to prepare kids for this. And and the thing that you are doing thrills me because it shows apologetics is for everyone. It's not mm-hmm. some specialized academic discipline. This is something that we're all called to and uh, teaching children to face some of these objections mm-hmm. is really kind of the first step in solidifying their faith, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I can't remember who originally said this. It might've been Schaefer, but he said, we're always one generation away from basically the faith being obliterated mm-hmm. uh, because if if we don't pass it on to the next generation, every next generation is in charge of passing it on. And so if if that generation drops the ball or if we drop the ball preparing that generation, I mean, that's, that's a huge amount of responsibility that we have. But one of the things that I find to be the most important is that 
apologetics, I don't think the main purpose of apologetics is for people who don't believe to be evangelized into the faith. I think the main purpose of apologetics is helping the people already in the faith not leave the faith because of unanswered questions. Mm. And especially when it comes to kids, uh, my, my, my pastor's wife growing up, I remember her saying, I don't want my kids to hear about anything that they haven't heard in my kitchen first. Because when you start hearing about ideas and it's somebody else, there's something... Um, there's a psychological phenomena that whoever introduces you to something first immediately becomes the expert yeah, in your mind. So there's credibility. As here. far as I know, there's not a phrase that does it. So I call it the founder's effect. It's kind of a variation of mm-hmm. something within um, evolutionary biology. But just this idea that whoever presents it first becomes the expert. And so we need to have mom and dad presenting not only the answers, but the arguments first so that they are prepared. Because otherwise, when you hear something for the first time and you think and you've never heard it from anybody in church, it's like, oh, my gosh, they don't know about this. If they knew about this, maybe they wouldn't believe either. And so now somebody else is the expert. And that's the person I'm going to for information instead of saying, oh, yes, I remember them going through this. This is something to be expected. Um, I think blindsiding can be so much more damaging than just the questions first. Uh, And then there is Fuller Youth Institute, who actually did a study on what are some of the things that causes kids to doubt. And one of the highest things on there was the fact that they couldn't express their doubts mm. or they couldn't express their questions. And sometimes just being able to express them, making church a safe place for them to ask these things, uh, kind of whew, it, it lowered that um, that pressure uh, to the point of they, they've encouraged some um, churches to, I think is in the new book by Elisa, and Tim, uh, Elisa Childers and Tim Barnett, that they recommend that pastors actually have a Q&A sometimes built into some of their sermons where it, this is showing everybody and all the kids that are watching, all the people that are you know, would never ask their own questions, we invite questions. Mm. Because how many people who have left the faith have you heard say, well, my church just you know told me to just have more faith? Yep. Yeah, and, over and over again. And it just ha- shutting down the question produced the issue in the first place. So how do we make it a welcoming and inviting place? And we don't have to have all the answers. I've got this phrase from my dad that I literally had taped above my kids' desks uh, when when I was a teacher. It's that you don't need to know everything, but you need to know how to ask the right questions. And you don't need to have all the answers. You just need to know where to find the answers. So having that built-in resources of, oh, you've got that question. I've got a good resource for you. That right there, I mean, just what do they say? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yes. I always remind our people the name Israel means to wrestle with God. The people of God have always been called to wrestle with God and the things of God. And that's a good that. thing. Yeah. It's beautiful. I love that. And I love, Hillary, your ministry to moms and and, and ultimately to dads as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife started reading your books and she passed them on to me and just kind of fell in love. And I think this is so important that your ministry is directly affecting parents because we do live in an age where the Christian family has outsourced discipleship to their children's ministry and to their youth ministry. And I think part of your ministry and your heart is to recapture the foundational principle of, no, the family is called to Mm -hmm. disciple their children. The family was the first sphere of culture that God designed in in the garden and at at the creation uh, of the world. And you're here in studio because you're uh, here this week uh, with the Institute for Faith and Culture teaching our parents what it means to raise your children in a post-Christian world. And one of those issues that we've been delving into during your institute course is really the area 
area of education, mm-hmm. um, and there's so much we could unpack <laughs> on the area of education yes. today in the 21st How century. How much time do we got here? <laughs> but just off the top of your head, what what are what is one of the areas of deep concern you have regarding education and the next generation? Um, so one of them, I mean, it doesn't sound super spiritual, but that's really the dumbing down of what's going on, where they are getting away from teaching kids how to think and instead what to think, which ironically is what we've always been accused yeah, of, right? That's right. Um, but now we see that going on in the schools where the kids know I'm just supposed to regurgitate. I'm not actually supposed to think through this. And there's certain questions that are off limits because it might offend somebody. Um, so that would be one of them. And I would just say uh, probably what we've seen in culture, especially from it was in the ivory towers in the 60s and 70s. It trickled down to a little bit more of the mainstream, the 80s and 90s. And now we're full blown that this has gone into the elementary schools. And that's this idea that there really isn't truth. There's your truth. There's my truth. There's what works. I mean, there's just every single aspect of truth that they're the things that you can test, you know, those can maybe be true and the things that you can't test. Well, that's just personal preference. And these were never divided. And I don't think they were meant to be divided. Um, you know, where God, some of his, I am statements, I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. We were never supposed to have this sphere of life that was like, well, this is the true sphere versus this is, you know, the preferences. It was all supposed to congeal together to reveal the richness of reality. And um, like uh, Nancy Piercy's book, Saving Leonardo, she goes through and shows how these ideas trickled into the arts and how the artists themselves were, were almost deconstructing what it meant for to be a human. And we see it very beginning with uh, the concept of what we're depicting is not true. And then we would depict things, but we don't depict the spiritual things because those aren't really true. So we're going to depict everyday life. Then we're going to depict it without there being any interpretation. This is where you get into the impressionist, where we want to see what it would look like for someone who was blind to just see for the first time. And it's just these patches of light with no interpretation. And then we get down to stuff like the Mondrian where in the cubist where it's like, I mean, it's interesting to see this devolution of man yeah. uh, through the arts. And so, um, yeah, I would say that that all starts out with the idea of truth. And what do you have left? You've got two things. When, uh, when you get rid of truth, you've got two things left. You have emotions and you have power. Mm. And let's delve into that a little wow, bit more that's because that's really, you know, the you have the the postmodern movement that we were all talking about a few years ago and different people dated at different times. But you, you mentioned Francis Schaeffer before he talked mm-hmm. about how you could see it in art and, yes. you know, listen to a, a, a concerto from Bach and then something from John Cage, which is, you know, lug nuts being thrown on a <laughs> piano strings yeah. and yeah. It's, it's totally random, uh-huh. which is sending a message. So you had this this postmodern doubt of truth this subjectivity that grows and grows. But now, as you point out, there's this huge elevation of feelings. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe people are not aware even of how pervasive this is, but everything from the LGBTQ stuff to uh, to a lot of uh, issues when it comes to, uh, you know, critical race theory, other Mm -hmm. critical theories, all the things that we're dealing with now uh, at the center of them have this elevation of emotion of feelings above anything actually objective, if there is any objective world at all, which many of them doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, like, I want to kind of unpack the idea of critical theory and how it's different from critical thinking, because I think uh, that Mm. these are also starting to become confused. Yes. So critical thinking is being able to really kind of 
pick apart the ideas. Does this make logical sense? Is this true? And of course, that assumes that logic is such a thing that we should, you know, be pursuing. And the truth is a kind of thing that exists and can be known. Critical theory really sees everything come back to the concept of power and comes back to the concept of um, what is oppression and what is to be oppressed. And, you know, who who is the oppressor? Who's the oppressed? Who is um, having justice and who is withholding? justice, everything. It's like once you see uh, everything through the lens of these power dynamics, then you're supposedly, you can understand the world uh, and how everything has been shaped according to this. It's not through sin. It's not through, even even Marx, he said it was through economics, which they've gone away from that. Marx talked about in economics that that it it was a concept of power and oppression, but it was all through economics. They've even gotten away from that. And, And a word that I think it's important for people to understand is the word hegemony. So the word hegemony means that you have this implicit power uh, where you're the one who decides what's normal. You're the one who decides what's true. You're the one who decides what behaviors are culturally acceptable. And you exert this power by being the majority and being able to influence change without necessarily having to go through police, without having to go through laws. It's just this kind of implicit thing that we have going on. And um, and so this, this concept of hegemony is what is being attacked of who is oppressed and who's the oppressor. And you don't even have to know that you're part of it. It's just the fact that if you you land in what is what I would consider not um, the oppressed, the oppressor culture. I would just say whatever is dominant culture. I think we have really, like, to use their own words, we have colonized this idea of what oppressive and oppressed is because you go over into other countries and you'll see most of the power is is at the hands of the people who are the dominant culture, mm-hmm. whatever that dominant culture looks like. To say that America is uniquely evil for this because it happens to be white, well, you're you're ignoring what happened between China and Japan. You're ignoring what's happening in South America. Um, this is something that we see in humans. This is not something we see in whiteness. This is something we see in humans. And so, but here in America, we're just so blind to all these other things. We turn everything into a racial issue. And we don't want to ignore that there's race issues that go on because that's one of the things we teach about in Mama Bear is that you need to look for where the person has a legitimate point first. You need right. to identify it. You need to stand in solidarity with solidarity with them side by side. The affirmation burger. That's right. The affirmation <laughs> burger. Rob yep. knows this stuff inside <laughs> yeah. out. But He's your best student. In, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. I love the affirmation burger. Yeah. So we need, it's like, unless a person thinks that you've heard what they've said, they think I need to shout louder. And then you have people like the climate justice people who are throwing soup on the Mona Lisa. That's what it looks like to feel like you have to shout louder to (laughs) to make people hear. Um, You just start doing ridiculous things. Um, And and so that's that's all going to hear. I need to shout louder. So they're going to be less likely to hear anything you say unless they know, wow, he sees the same problems that I see. He sees the same motivations. He sees the same critiques all these different things, he, they understand it. They understand where I'm coming from. That diffuses. Mm. But like, I mean, have you ever had it where you were misunderstood and someone finally understood? Yes. And yeah. it just kind of diffused that feeling of defensiveness. Absolutely. We're trying to diffuse that feeling of defensiveness to where at that point when it's diffused, whew, they see me, they hear me, they understand what I'm saying. Now I can actually interact with what they're saying because I'm not in this fight or flight where I have to get this mm. message out or they're never going to hear it. 
now I can start to evaluate and understand what's going on. And I can welcome those questions that say, hey, I agree with these things, but what about this? Is this what the Bible teaches or what about this other aspect? Definitely. Along those lines, I mean, when it comes to race, I mean, the church should quickly be able to say, Slavery was awful. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow was heinous. Yes. Uh, racism is a horrendous evil. Mm-hmm. Like we, we've got to be able to be, be able to yeah, quickly affirm those things. And uh, to your mm-hmm. point, just that affirmation hopefully leads to a, a more objective conversation. People put down their swords when they don't feel defensive, if yeah. they feel like you're actually trying to understand them. But back on this issue of race, because you could be listening to this podcast, there they go again, yeah. you yes. know, <laughs> the alarmist out yeah. there. But you're not only a thought leader and an author and a speaker, you're an educator. Mm-hmm. Talk to our audience a little bit about the, the realities of things like um, equity grading, oh. uh, uh, racism in mathematics, yeah. and kind of all of these things that we're seeing in real life in real time in the education system. Yeah. So we, we've kind of gotten this God in our education system of uh, graduation rates. It's like if, if I went back and I looked, did you, did you watch The Wonder Years when you were of younger? Course. Of course. Of course. We all love that. Um, and I remember this scene where he's in middle school and there's like this 16-year-old kid in there and everybody knew this is kind of the bully. He's huge, you know, with these bunch of 12-year-olds and they're <laughs> scared of him. Well, that was in the days when they wouldn't pass someone along if they hadn't mastered the concepts. Mm. They will not do this. And I don't know if this started with the whole every no child left behind or where it actually started. But this idea that it is innately evil to not pass someone along um, and to, they, 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 we need to do what you can just to get them along and that people will tout their graduation rates as proof that the school is doing well. But we have no idea what these kids have actually learned. Like you can you can graduate anybody. I mean, I've seen I've literally seen them give, you know, service dogs a <laughs> diploma next to their, you know, their person that they go to school with. It's like, you know, having a graduation rate, that doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you if this person has mastered the concepts or not. And so this idea of equity grading is it puts um, it puts self-esteem ahead of actual competence. Mm. And uh, which I think is ultimately damaging. I, and I'm trying to remember who it was that wrote this book. And, and I don't think it was, Th- it might have been Thomas Sowell or it might have been someone who was influenced by Thomas Sowell. But he was really, really, really against, and this was maybe back in 2008, maybe, uh, really against this idea of the diversity uh, things into universities, the acceptance rates, where they were looking at and saying, uh, in order to, for a black person to get in Harvard, they could have basically like a 400 point gap in their SATs, then, you know, a a Hispanic person, and then the whites, and then the Asians had to have like 200 points higher Mm -hmm. in order for them to all have their diversity uh, quotas met. And he was saying, this is so bad because we're bringing in African-Americans who would have excelled and thrived in a different school, but who are now being placed at the very bottom and always feeling like they're lagging behind. Yeah, they can have the self-esteem of going to Harvard, but uh, it's, it's really damaging their ability to feel competent in what they're doing because they're constantly feeling like they're behind. And so this was a black man that was writing about this saying, I don't agree with this. So the equity grading is this idea. I remember even back when I was a teacher, I was not allowed to give anything lower than a 50. Um, I have a friend of mine who loved teaching. She was so passionate that she went and got her master's. I mean, she she did the whole master's program in a year because she just couldn't wait. And she really wanted to teach in Hawaii. And so when she went and taught in Hawaii, she would have kids that literally would not show up to class the entire year. And then the last month, they were allowed to go and redo all these um, 
uh, all these assignments mm. and then graduate at the last oh minute to the point of where she's like, I don't feel like I'm doing anybody any yeah. favors. And she and her husband now run a food truck. Yeah. <laughs> Why show up to work? Yeah. What's the point? <laughs> it really is astounding to, to imagine, you know, it used to be, well, you, you get, you'd think we well, get 50 just for showing up. Now you don't even have to show up. You get 50, I guess, just for being alive. Yeah. And then we mm-hmm. go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, these concepts of, again, truth being replaced by feelings being replaced by other things, by Mm -hmm. self-esteem. It all seems to filter into this. And then we even talked a little bit before we started here, but but there's this whole idea that uh, even the basic concepts of learning might be part of that hegemony that you talked about. So Uh now uh, white Europeans are responsible not only for, you know, whatever uh, crimes have been lodged against them, but they're responsible for things like logic Uh and the scientific method. And suddenly these become <laughs> racial concepts that mm-hmm. apparently need to be rejected if we're going to be anti-racist, yep. which leads us to insanity. And it seems to be an insult to the people it's supposedly lifting up. Yeah. it's. I mean, that's one of the things that you'll find. I think a lot of this diversity, equity, inclusion is so, it is itself racist against the people that they're trying to actually uplift because it's saying we don't believe that you have the ability to actually do this on your own. You you need, you know, a white savior to come in here and tell you that you mm. don't have to always get the right answer in math. Uh, that that uh, this idea of there only being one right answer is a white thing. And, and um, yeah, so there, there was this meme that was going around recently. I can't remember who it was, but it was just kind of this group of people, you know, all different colors, ironically, all kind of dressed the same. But it said, is there anything more important than diversity? And of course, you have, all, you know, all the, you know, seven people that are going, amen, amen. And I was like, I'm about to have a colonoscopy. I think I would really prefer competence at this <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> it's coming um, up with the pilots yes. now, too. Yeah. Like, do you really, uh, do, what do you want in your pilot? Yeah. Uh, I want competency. The, the one that I was exploring yesterday, and it's um, basically racism in math and how to have equitable math, is this idea that maybe we need to get away from the idea that there's only one right answer. And uh, we need to ask, you know, what's another way that you could solve this problem? Or uh, they, they specifically said that it was during the Industrial Revolution where precision pre- precision and accuracy were important, but we've kind of moved away from that. I'm like, I... I I really think that's so important. (laughs) Um, And and so, and of course, this idea of um, teachers, and I know a lot of teachers are so frustrated with this, that they're not considered to be the teacher and the student, the student. Now they want you to have this this partnership with the student where they kind of tell you what they know and you kind of tell them what you know. And I'm thinking if we had like five years per grade, yeah, we could have this great Socratic conversation where, you know, everybody's white and we all give each other a pat on the back for these different ideas. (laughs) But when you have actual competencies that you're supposed to have learned by the end of this school year, you don't have the time to go through these. I used to teach chemistry to uh, kids in this private school that they didn't fit in with regular school. And so it was it was just kind of a special school. And a lot of my kids had learning differences. They weren't special needs the way you'd think of normal, um, you know, special needs like uh, Down syndrome and stuff. But they had, you know, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. Um, There was one kid that you could say something to the group and then you would have to turn and say it directly to him because for some reason when it was said to the group, he couldn't generalize that to, oh, I need to do that too. Mm -hmm. She said, everybody open your book. Okay, you need to open your book. You know, just things like that. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember how fast we had to go that sometimes we had to add time to the class because the amount of information I had to get through was so much that if I was supposed to be having these like really slow leisurely dialogues with them, we would never get be done with forever. the material. Yeah, yeah, we would be there forever. <laughs> I mean, this is great kind of things to do over lunch and over the dinner table, but this is not the kind of thing that ha can happen in a classroom and have people come out the other end just as educated as the ones that are going through a rigorous, you have to keep up. And again, this idea of this rigorous having to keep up, you know, progress, that is also considered another white thing um, that, the, that we need to have quality over quantity. I'm like, well, what exactly does that look like in math? If, if I can do 100 questions correctly or I can do one, it's like, but I did it really, really well. Like, I know personally... I have to have something where I practice over and over again until it becomes second nature. So it, the, the, the quantity is what burrows this information into your brain. Um, and to get away from that, I, it's just, I don't know, it's not healthy. It's not good. It's not good for our students, but it also brings me back uh, kind of taking this full circle. Why is this happening? And I think of the quote by that's attributed to Hitler of how fortunate for leaders that men do not think. Mm -hmm. uh, that I think I was telling you guys before we started that there was this book called uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in there is this idea of dumbing things down to where you don't have a people that can come and question your ideas. And I do th see that that's what's going on in our schools right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, it used to be uh, that the concept of tolerance meant to simply tolerate. Yes. Uh, tolerance. Uh, we live in a new age of tolerance mm -hmm. now uh, where we're called bigots in the church uh, for not bowing down to the cultural elites or to those that are redefining words. Uh, describe for our audience what it's like for a child growing up in the 21st century, particularly in this new age of tolerance. Yeah. So um, this is something I think uh, I think it was Christian Smith. It might have been him that said this is the North Star of this generation. He was talking about the millennials, and I think it's even more so with Gen Z. And that is um, tolerance, like the actual definition of tolerance is to live in peace despite disagreement. Wow. And so I like to always, when I'm talking to parents or if I'm talking to students, say, okay, based on this definition, what is, excuse me, what is required in order to have tolerance. And they're like, well, I guess disagreement. I'm like, good job. Yes. You're required to disagree in order even to even practice tolerance. So what they're wanting is not tolerance. They're either wanting agreement or they want you to have no conviction about it. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're not, it's like we can believe something as long as we don't think it's like for reals true and that it's true for everybody. You know, you're welcome to think whatever you want. Just don't impose that on anybody else and stay quiet when they say it. And there's certain ideas that can be expressed loudly and other ideas, usually the conservative, more Christian ones, that have to be expressed really quietly. Um, but again, what I see happening with this is you will have a lot of people who have been in church culture, and I'm going to use that in scare quotes. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to talk about this idea that I've mentioned in the, the classes we've been talking about of what constitutes the world and how there's a demographic we've been missing from that. Um, but there's a lot of people who are in, in the culture of this kind of woke culture that say, this is exactly what I experienced in the church. You know, you were allowed to say all these Christian, you know, things, even if they led to harm and abuse and all these things. And if I questioned that, that was shut down. So we literally do have the same problem happening in some churches that we see happening kind of in the schools. And so both groups are looking at each other and saying, you're the problem. And guess what? They're both right. Mm. 
it's good. Yeah, and uh, you know, that it wants tolerance is the idea that you will not, you cannot disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Then you've you've completely emptied the whole thing out, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's that you have this sort of strange monoculture that supposedly they're fi- fighting against. So you have devoted a lot of work to helping mothers, particularly families, uh, bring their children up in the faith with this apologetics approach. They're inundated now. They from every direction. I, I, you know, my my children are a bit older now, so uh, we were homeschoolers, but we were we dealt with postmodernism and relativism, but we didn't have social media and oh, the, and and the trans movement being what it is now and so forth. So uh, for. People who are raising young children now, help us to plot a way forward. And I recognize that could be, you know, a days long discussion, but just in some basic terms, how do Christian parents who have, let's say, a child that's just been born or they've got a two or three year old at home, the future lays out before them, but but a landscape with TikTok and uh, Instagram and, and the computer all sits in front of them and the public school down the corner and what? What steps do they take now in raising Christian children? Yes. So there's two words that come to mind specifically for this, and that's normalization and repetition. Mm. That that really is how we are getting these ideas is we're first normalizing them and then repeating them. And so in the second Mama Bear book, uh, Guide to Sexuality, I have as an afterword a kind of pseudo chapter called Things to Repeat to Your Kids Until They Want to Gag. And it comes from this concept that um, I'm trying to remember uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, has a quote in there that says that the brain has a hard time differentiating between that which is familiar and that which is true. Mm And so this concept of the more you hear something, the more true you think it sounds. And this is where it kind of like I've always wondered why, you know, advertising, why why do they think if I just see this over and over again, it's going to make me buy it. If I want to buy it, I'll buy it. And if I don't want to buy it, I won't buy it. But that's not how it human works. psychology works. It yeah. works because that repetition, you slowly start craving that. Mm. Um, and so what we have, uh, we need parents to be aware of which things are repeating the worldview that they don't want them to be basically inundated with. And I fully recommend uh, setting some money aside to get yourself DVDs of older shows. Mm-hmm. You know, for girls who like stuff like Little House on the Prairie, my sister loved that show. Or we both did, and she, I'm all the way up. Or there's a family nearby me that I love. I mean, their screen is tiny. It's about that big. So it doesn't dominate the house. And they have things like Saved by the Bell or um, uh, Love Comes Softly, some of these, you know, Hallmark things. Or what are they going through right now? A couple other things that they're going through. Boy Meets World. You know, different things like that. Before you had all these agendas creeping in. So they could still feel like they, they're watching TV with everybody. But they're not getting this constant inundation of the ideas that are slipping into children's programming. So that would be like the normalization and the repetition. So if I were to say one thing for parents to be aware of, um, it's not it's not necessarily having to protect or to uh, make it to where they never see this. We just need to make sure that they're not hearing and seeing this more than what we are seeing in Scripture. And that also comes down to this idea that how often are we repeating the biblical worldview. So the, the uh, things to repeat to your kids until they want to gag, this is these little bite-sized pieces of worldview, things like what you do with your body matters. Mm-hmm. Why? Because God gave you your body to take care of it. Mm-hmm. How many times do they need to hear this and how many things in the whole trans movement would that actually be relevant for if that's what they heard all the time? Right. 
How about the how about the parent that's maybe dealing with a, a teenager or child in their twenties, maybe that mm-hmm. raised in the faith, uh, now they're doubting everything. Oh yeah. Uh, wh- what is your counsel and advice to that mom, to that dad that is dealing with a child that is doubting what they believe? Yeah, and this kind of goes back to our uh, what we did the very first night here is kind of looking at the personality of the child. Is this a child that was constantly asking questions, um, or is this a child that was constantly um, concerned about you know what their friends were doing. These would be kind of two different personality types. And so I would say that the original challenge to Christianity was, is this true? But the challenge that we now have to it is, is this good? To where people don't even care if it's true or not, because we've already obliterated this idea of truth. Truth is just a power play. It's a way that you oppress, you know, women and minorities uh, for you to put your truth. Again, the hegemony. (laughs) We're installing our truth. So first off, I think you just need to listen to your child. I think one of the biggest things to do is to listen, because I say over and over again in a lot of my talks, we cannot refute that which we don't understand. Hmm. And so if we're trying to refute something before we understand it, well, you're probably just going to talk talk past them and they are never going to bring these questions to you again. The fact that they're even telling you, I think I'm having trouble believing, that's a good thing. It means that there's still that communication. So I would say, what are some of the things that you're having trouble with? And a lot of people's instinct is to jump into answer mode first, but just think about it. Sometimes it's like this brain dump where you need to dump all these things first and you have to hear yourself saying them before you start actually getting to the real issue. So don't assume that the first thing they say is actually the real issue. People very rarely know what their main issue is, and it's going to take time to kind of get almost that. There's all these reasons that they've done that are kind of like these defensive reasons to protect that actual reason. Give them time to get that out. And once they get it out, then you can start saying, well, then you start using the affirmation burger. Yeah, you're right. I can understand how, um, you know, what, what you've seen with the way women have been treated. That is heinous. And uh, are you aware of how the treatment of women throughout history has changed when that area was Christianized? That it, it, historically, anytime you had Christianity move into a culture, the women were elevated. Mm-hmm. Uh, So a really great book for this would be um, by Jeff Myers of Summit Ministry. It's Truth Changes Everything, where he goes through things like uh, medicine and social justice and the legal system and um, uh, education and shows this huge impact. And, you know, in women, he shows this huge impact that Christianity has had that everybody just kind of conveniently forgets right now, showing them this is something good. But again, if you're a parent and you have a child like this, you need to get to the main issue first. Otherwise, you're just... Like I say, wasting time answering the wrong questions. Yeah. That's an excellent point because in this era of deconstruction, uh, which we hear so much now, sometimes even the stated objection is not what's really going on there. And, and mm-hmm. I hate to say it, and this is not necessarily pointing out any any particular listeners children, you know, in their teens or 20s. But the reality seems to be so often that these these sex and gender issues actually end up driving this stuff yes. as opposed to intellectual uh, doubts, even though those may be the way they're expressed. Yes, absolutely. I think I think uh, we talked extensively about this, I think, both nights about how just our identity as humans uh, and sexuality, it says, you know, this is that one sin where a person sins against themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, sex is one of the, the few 
few sins that we do that like really goes against our soul, against our spirit, against who we are as a person. And so uh, that's going to affect everything. It's it's not something, you know, we had a, the diagram where it shows where your thoughts and feelings and actions, kind of like in cognitive behavioral therapy, those kind of trickle into each other. But when you have something that's affecting that core person, that can just completely obliterate mm-hmm. all three of those categories at the same time. And we don't want to downplay that uh, at all. So we have to recognize those things when we're dealing this as well. We're always dealing with a whole person, not just a set of intellectual objections. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. And I think this is so helpful. One of the methods you teach parents is the chew and spit yes. method. It beca- and I think it's so important uh, because the tendency is to always overreact. Yes. Uh, the tendency, we're just going to uh, stay in our holy huddle. We're never going to come out <laughs> of our home and just isolate ourselves from the world and culture. And that's not mm-hmm. reality. And that's really not God's design for the people of God. We're called to be salt and light. So explain briefly, what is that method and why is it so important for Christian parents? Yeah. So I, I like to compare this to having a child that literally lives in a bubble. I, there was a movie uh, a long time ago called Bubble Boy, where he had a like tanked immune system or they mm-hmm. thought he did and he lived in this actual bubble. But like with my friends, with young kids, whenever I see them, all of a sudden they grab for something off the floor and they're like, no, don't eat that. I'll just be like, well, building that immune system. <laughs> um, that the, uh, being presented with these ideas um, is part of building your spiritual immune system in the sense that you can, you're, bought, you're capable of handling some of these bad ideas. And so we want to start out with what is true. Of course, we don't want to just, you know, give a baby, you know, hold them up the, the door handle at a gas station and be like, lick away. Um, you know, we don't want to do that. But now um, you tell me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I know people are like, dang it. Um, but uh, we want to start introducing some of these ideas slowly um, into in, in, into their vocabulary, into their experience. And then we want to be able, I mean, isn't the, isn't the beautiful thing about media now that we can pause everything? That's yep. true. Like, I mean, except for like live radio and even sometimes you can do that. It's just crazy. Like if when I was a kid, if you missed it, you missed it. That's yep. it. Uh, but we can pause everything. And so just being paying attention, this gives you a, this gives you permission to stop doing all these things around the house and just sit maybe and watch TV with your kids. Like, doesn't everybody kind of want to have yeah. that permission? I give you permission to sit and do nothing sometimes. And it might mean that the house is messier and you have a mac and cheese night. But let's just sit and watch some of these things. And you'd be surprised at the number of things that'll come through. Uh, like my, my friend Amy, who's also a mama bear, they they had this episode of something where um, everybody was trying to figure out who had sent some love letter. And finally, at the very end, it reveals that, you know, they, they've been thinking it was like this emo band guy, you know, with the hair and the guitar and all the things. And he was always surrounded by this gaggle of fans. And at the very end, you discover it was one of the girls that was around him that this young girl was giving the love letter to. And her son goes, wait, hold on, mom. D- d- does he have a crush on a girl? Like her other son was overplaying with Legos. He was watching the same thing, didn't notice it. Mm. If she had missed that opportunity, it's like, okay, I guess we're talking about this now. Um, to put on pause and talk through things as they come. This is the absolute best thing you can do. And I also encourage parents, whenever you go to movies, pick a movie theater that's really far away. I mean, not like an hour away. Well, unless you're in Pella and everything's an hour away. Yeah. Um, But pick something that's unusually longer so that as you're driving home, you can start talking about some of the big themes that you saw. What what were some of the situations? And especially with young kids, they have no idea how long it takes to get anywhere. They just know that mom and dad magically know, like, how to get places. Um, 
And having them in the back seat, especially because you're not doing this full eyeball to eyeball conversation, which is good, especially with boys Mm -hmm. who sometimes have a hard time with the eyeball to eyeball conversations, um, that you can just start talking about it. Once you, you don't have to add all this new stuff into your life. You just have to integrate apologetics into what you're already doing. Which means no mindless consumption. Yeah. And that should be true for us and for our kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Hillary, such a joy to have you on the City of God podcast. Thank you for your ministry. It is making such an impact and a difference. Thank you. Absolutely. Love being here. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of City of God with Hillary Morgan Ferrer. If you enjoyed and were inspired by this podcast today, we pray that you'd pass it along to family and friends, anyone who wants to explore the biggest issues of life all through the lens of God's infallible word. Uh, We pray that you join us next time right back here at the City of God. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God Podcast, where Christ meets culture.